This is Sean O'Byrne for the Readings Podcast, talking today with George Saunders, author of several books, including four books of short stories, Civil War Land in Bad Decline, Pastoralia, In Persuasion Nation, and The Tenth of December, a book of essays, The Brain Dead Megaphone, and now a new book, a novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. So hello, George, and welcome. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. That's okay. Um, so I was thinking about how to start and how I would describe your work to somebody who hasn't read you and why it matters to me and why I think they should read it. And I would say something like, the book, the work is extraordinarily well-structured, sentence to sentence. It has a kind of quickness and snap. But more than that, it seems to me that you get to something that fiction is always in danger of not including enough, which is mostly what's going on. Mm. It seems to me that fiction is now maybe more than ever in danger of becoming this kind of separate thing that's that's in, you know nicely intelligent and nicely organized but always a little too genteel mm. and what you do i think is get to this culture that's now becoming the main culture which is this aggressive populist culture led by big business which is finding more and more ways to make us pay attention to it, make us give it money. Um, and you found a way to take that culture into literature mm. and in a way talk back to it. And that, I, that I think is so valuable. And I think fiction doesn't do it enough. I love that characterization. That you know, I, I think for me, when, when you were talking, what uh, struck me was I really uh, want fiction to communicate about urgent things. And otherwise, I, I wouldn't be interested. And you're absolutely right. There's a danger of contemporary fiction becoming a little bit like uh, that sort of museum-quality jazz you sometimes hear. Like, that used to be vital, you know. <laughs> Let's honor it by showing up, even though yeah. it's not speaking yeah. to us directly. Yeah. So for me, I, I was uh, a musician first, actually. And uh, for all the kind of crass reasons, you want you want people to know your name, you want to do something beautiful and be known for it. Uh, and then somehow I sensed correctly that I didn't have enough pop in, in music. Uh, so when I started writing fiction, I had the idea that I would want to talk directly about the stuff that was actually urgent. Now, to do that, how to do that is tricky. That's the, the tricky part. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it, it, there was a real critical moment where I thought, okay, it has to do with, you know, if you're my reader, we're in an intimate communication that is not going to be bullshitty. It's, it, you know, we, we can't talk around the real stuff for two hours and act like we've had a real conversation. So then, you know, it kind of means... Uh, I suppose on the most simple level, it means if it concerns me, I assume it concerns you, and then I got to try to get it on the table in front of us. That you know, the thing that struck me looking back over, in particular, the books of short stories was, is it kind of the first step to this was getting the language in, getting this. I was thinking of it like a, it's like a street language, like it's this second unofficial language that we mostly talk, but it's and then they're like an old street language, but it's also been changed by. I think just being in the city together and getting kind of quicker with each other and also watching a lot of comedy, like yeah. sort of situation comedy. There's a way that we kind of, there's a performance built into how we talk to each other now. Mm. And mm. right from the get-go, your short stories kind of capture that. Right. Yeah, the way that we, yeah. there's a sentence I wanted to quote, which is, um, 
this is really early, this is in uh, Civil War land, in Bad Decline, the story. Uh, almost before I know it, he's reeling out the door and I go grab a Peter. Yeah. And just that, <laughs> just that, just even to think of that as a phrase to include, but just the, the kind of fastness of it and yeah. the snap of it seemed to be quite characteristic of what you were doing really early. Right. And for me, that, that moment had to do with, uh, you know, I was a working class person. So as a working class person trying to be in the world of literature, you first start saying literature. You know, you, yeah. st- you, you, you dress yourself up in an artificial way in language that seems literary, uh, which is, for me, what was completely false to my actual lived experience. If I was out in the world trying to persuade somebody or trying to plead my case, I would never use high language. I would use, you know. So that was one thing. And then when... Uh, I think I had a feeling early that if it was spoken, it was literature. You know, even if it was inarticulate, if it was manipulative, it was corporatist, uh, if it was low and ungrammatical. If a human being speaks it, it has to be literary because the assumption, the working assumption is every human being is a three-dimensional, psychological, emotional being, equal. Every human being you ever have seen has got the same uh, spirit spirit core you you know so then but but now we're all not equally gifted at articulating Mm. so we have some of us have crimped openings all of us do so so that became a real uh you know in writing you're always looking for a way to uh, get permission yeah and once i thought that i'm like oh my god everybody i've ever met everybody and every situation i've been in including a corporate health and safety meeting you if we imagine those all as being uh poetry generators then suddenly the world comes open and there's no language is excluded and the only and the way to make the language poetic is to overflow that particular mode of diction so it is by it's de facto literary because you're working on it for 20 hours you know but if you take a speech uh i I worked at a corporation when i was writing the first book and it was amazing the rhetorical lengths that we could go to to evade truth basically (laughs) but those could be quite beautiful you know i mean they're they're uh it's like somebody dodging rocks thrown at them can be a dance you know so and it's part of the sadness though of contemporary life and and and, you know working for people who you don't necessarily dislike that much but just the way you're forced to talk yes yeah and and in your work this comes through so strongly this double life of like i'm gonna have to talk like a supervisor and then someone's gonna say Get off my ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not happy for anybody. That was, you know, I worked at this corporation for, well, two of them for about eight years while I was writing my first book and when our kids were little. And the big revelation was, you know, in in American culture, mocking the corporation is not new. I mean, the Jetsons, for example, or, you know. um, But what was, what I found new was to realize that the sadness goes in every direction. The the supervisors aren't getting off easy either, you know. Uh, Everybody's mutually agreed to this sort of degraded language system and this uh, also you know agreed to be in a place that isn't vital to them for 10 hours a day you know when our kids were little they were home I really wanted to be there but for obviously very good reasons I had to be elsewhere doing this stuff that to me was completely peripheral to my actual being and you know but I got insurance, so <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And you got out. Yeah, so well, I did. Yeah, but, and yeah. you know, you're helping everybody who has to stay yeah. in. Um, one thing I thought I saw through the through the books, through the books of short stories, and then leading up to to the novel Lincoln in the Bardo, was, and I'm not quite sure how to talk about this, but it was just like an increase in fiction skill that was sort of exciting to see as it went along. Where as you go, you find new ways to stay in the story more. There's an example from Victory Lap, the story of Victory Lap, where this guy Kyle is um, ruled by his over-strict parents and he's forced to keep a log of every car that, that comes near the house. 
and you say, you make him say, one of the usual ruskies got out. Ruski was an allowed slang. Also dang it, also holly golly, also crapper. And what I loved about that was it struck me as such, an, such a clever connection because you're, you're advancing the plot, but you're also keeping it so tight within the, the kind of character and the character's world. And it strikes me that you're able to do that. You kind of teach yourself to do that story to story and book to book. Yes. Yeah, no, that's true. For me, it's um, all this stuff comes out of uh, language, you know, the, the line to line attention to the language. And part of that process is to, is to say who's, who's speaking. You know, if, if he's speaking, then I'm sorry, he can't have a thought that isn't his thought. Then combined with this urge that I have, it's kind of a uh, control freak urge. I really want every line to be uh, full of something, you know, alive in some way. Uh, I was talking to a young writer at, at, the other day and she said, I want every line to have my heart in it. And I thought, ah, that was a beautiful way to say it, you know. Yeah. So then it, it becomes, these two things are mutually enforcing. You're in Kyle's mind. Yeah. And you're trying to make poetry, but you have to make poetry in his diction. So by doing that, uh, you're basically constantly taking a, um, an inventory of what he knows. What does he have at his disposal? Yeah. That in turn becomes an inventory of what the story has as its symbolic uh, or metaphorical disposal. You yeah. know? I mean, that's a fancy way of saying no, no. thanks. And, and, uh, and also, <laughs> that, you know, that I, for me, it's, a, it's, a, it's really talking about it as one thing. Doing it has to do with a kind of concentrative mode where there are just a few ground rules. Stay in his voice. Yeah. Stay, stay in his voice even as you're discovering his voice because that's not a static thing. Uh, and mm. then trust. Trust that if you stay in his voice with a poetic goal, yeah. that actually is what makes plot, weirdly. And do you still explicit, sort of ex study explicit examples from other writers? Are you still going back to writers that you love and sort of watching them do it, you know, how they do it, taking yes, with that but, kind of eye to individual parts of how they're putting the pieces together? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is yes and no. I, I'm definitely, I'm always going back and rereading the books that have spoken to me and trying to find new ones. Yeah. But I, I learned to not be too um, mm. precise in the transform. Like, in other words, I think it's kind of like if you, uh, if you hear a great guitar player and then you go and learn that lick and play it, you're not great. But if you hear the great guitar player and let your internal bar be raised... Oh to do whatever you do yeah. at that level. That, that's that's more like that's it. I think. When I was young, I did a lot of that, uh, you know, Hemingway does this, I'll do that. Uh, but now I, I, you know, one of my helpful personal metaphors is that there's a big agricultural hopper on the top of my head. And everything that I put in there, I, I the working assumption is, is going to help me. So if I read a great book, see a great film, listen to great music, have a great conversation, have a really shitty day somewhere that I get frustrated, all that stuff goes into the hopper. And through the process of working, it's somehow th the subconscious or whatever that is sorts through that, reorders it, and uses it as, as needed. So that's simplifying because I don't have to walk around with a notebook mm. or a set of approaches. I just have to keep my eyes open. And if something, especially if something makes me uncomfortable, I have to kind of go toward it. That's yeah. kind of enough. Yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, right. The practice of the work almost, if you keep practicing enough, you can, yeah. you can. Because one thing that struck me was towards the end of the 10th of December was, and there would be different ways to talk about this, but the there-ness in the story that kind of started to increase. Um, in the last story, the title story, 10th of December, Don is on the ice, and his language starts to get so attached or into his body that it's, the language itself starts to break into pieces, right? right. He can't... Right. And it's really moving to watch that happen on the page, and it seemed like a, a new thing 
that you were well, able to do really, because you'd stayed even stronger. You're a great reader because that was a very difficult section for me because it was almost pure action. And I, I don't I don't love pure action. I like something mm. that's a little action so, so I can get some comedic energy. Yeah. That was not a necessarily a uh, overtly comedic moment. And I remember thinking, okay, what do I have to have him do? Well, he had to go out on the ice and get that coat. Uh, and then that moment where you're thinking, okay, I, I, let's, I'll abandon comedic, but I won't abandon energetic language. Mm. How do I do it? And then the answer is always, you, you trust that there is, a, there is a mode of language that's mimetic for the reader, for the character's actual experience. So in a moment when you're uh, a man dying of cancer, <laughs> creeping out on your belly onto thin ice, yeah. there, there is a breaking, breaking <laughs> yeah, apart of language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, something that, I, and you're a really very perceptive reader, because in that story especially, I learned that, or I maybe had this knowledge advanced, fiction is a system, a story is a system that reacts to itself. Hmm. It actually, it looks like it reacts to the world, but it, that's not its first loyalty. The first loyalty, loyalty is to itself and what it's put in motion. Yeah. So in some ways, the fundamental job of the writer is to trust that if he uh, pays attention to his own reaction to the story, that's the way forward. In other words, and there is no, if, if you've revised enough, there's no fictive moment that won't bear fruit. The only time it won't bear fruit is if you lose faith in it and ricochet off and don't pay attention to it. But, you know, so in that story, there's there's a moment that was very, actually very important to the novel. Mm, um, yes, because you see the 10th of December kind of leap over into the right, novel. Right, over. And, and for me, the moment was uh, at the very end of the story, he's sort of waiting for his wife to come to get him. And yes. he's got this yeah. feeling of being glad to be alive and ashamed of what he's done and preparing for her reaction. And... Uh, I was kind of looking around for something to, for him to think. Yeah. And I just did that thing where I thought, okay, you know, I've been married at that point 27 years. What would I think? And I just put it down. Now, you, usually in the past, if I put down something sort of autobiographical, or uh, it lacked sizzle, it lacked mm. verbal pop. Mm. But this one, it, I had so much trust that it would, that my own life would be useful. It, it it came out almost verbatim, verbally crackly, you know. Uh, so oh. that was really something where I thought, okay, I can be, actually it's possible. Uh, it's possible for me to be earnest and still have some link, language energy, you oh. know. Oh. So, so, I mean, that sounds like a, a no-brainer. For, for, and for a better writer, it, it would be. But for me, I always came out of a place of kind of um, negative, well, I'll, I'll say negativity, darkness, edge, uh, dark oh. humor, so you, I think there's a lot of light in the early books, but they they come at it through a back door a little bit. Yes. You know, yeah. there's maybe four yeah. percent light that surprises you by its presence, <laughs> and you go, "Oh, it's actually thirty percent light." Yeah. Uh, and to, people doing their best, right, in a lot of darkness. That's right. That's yeah. So you overload the darkness, and you show something pushing back against it. Yeah. So I think where I'm headed uh, was to be able to actually maybe more uh, accurately or capaciously represent both light and dark. And to find that I could represent light in language that didn't suck was was a big plus. <laughs> it gives you a little bit of confidence, you know. And in Lincoln and the Bardo, it strikes me that two more things come in, which is really like affecting if you've been following the story of the books, which is history and a kind of religion. So now there are all these words and names which haven't been in your work before and a kind of history as history, history not as you know, the business idea of what history should be. A history is something that will, is entertainment and will make you buy. Now you've kind of gone successfully backwards and immediately you get this sense of 
all these words and, and names that weren't possible before and also this extraordinary like amount of sensibility and imagery you know mm. this this old-time religion um temptation and extraordinary scenes where you know suddenly a mass of people can be can be flowing towards someone or flowing back mm. out it's it's don watson last night uh, likened it to like a medieval painting and it has it's both it it's it's uh gives off this fine odor of the 19th century but also yeah the, like the 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 the, the, oh, the medieval yeah. and you know from my my perspective what that felt like was always uh feeling the power of history you know you go to uh, uh, to paris and you feel all that or even you go yeah. to washington dc or you go oh. to chicago you feel the the debt, the generations of dead around you. I mean, literally, they they made the place, and now they're not there. Yeah. Uh, or you feel, you know, as an American, you that Civil War stuff is so intensely crazy, you know, and, and you feel it. So for many years, I think I just roped it off and said, well, with my approach and my diction and my gifts, you know, whatever meager gifts towards corporate language, that's not somewhere I can go. And what I found was, as I got a little older, that was not acceptable. I don't, I don't like, and I don't like it now. I don't like the thought that. I, a human being who's every bit as alive as anybody ever was, can't go to certain places in my work. I, I think that's scary. It's, okay. uh, I, I don't want to die feeling that I have roped some part of reality off. Now, uh, early on, I had to because I, I yeah. would try to go there and I, I, it wouldn't cohere. It wouldn't be good. Yeah. So now I feel like I'm in kind of a frantic rush to keep pulling that rope out until there's no rope anymore. And I think what happens for me with Lincoln book, what was exciting was to see that you can understand a gift that you have in a certain, uh, in a certain, uh, articulation. So for example, I always thought of myself as a funny writer, comic writer. Okay. That book made me say, all right, let me, let me see if comic is a subcategory of some broader category, which actually I think it is. I think comic is a form of wit comedy is a form of wit hmm. with wit defined as kind and you kind of mentioned earlier if the writer is a hundred percent aware aware of where he is and where the reader is at any given point that's wit hmm. you know if i introduce a geode in victory lab yeah, yeah. if i remember the geode is still in the frame that's wit so so comedy sometimes wit manifests as comedy you know someone uh passes wind on an elevator and someone remarks on it and it's a joke but other times wit can just be remembering what you've put into play and then at some perfect moment taking advantage of this the stage that you've set so in in reconceptualizing that way suddenly i thought okay i can be a com a comic writer but i don't have to be i i can take that whatever that ability is and i can slightly turn it and use it in a different flavor which is very empowering yeah. and the thing that seems to have got you there is something that's always been in your work, which is a kind of unusual sensitivity to the fact of death or something mm. like the fact of death. Yeah. And like going on from what you were just saying, the the thing that turns out to be driving that change is you wanting to make us pay attention to the radical difference between life and death. Mm. And and you're, you're kind of trying to tell us something about the need to think differently to, about death mm -hmm. that we're in a way as a civilization as a culture quite bad maybe really sort of unusually bad at thinking about death yeah we're big deniers yeah, yeah. we're sort of like a real concentrated area of doing badly with yeah this. yeah I, I i guess i feel like that um 
it certainly feels real to me that that it will happen. Although not, it feels seventy percent real that it'll happen to me. <laughs> to you, you're about you're about eighty-seven. I'm but, I, you know, I mean, but but I think, um, yeah, I think it's actually it, it feels like a really positive thing to say. You know, if you're if you're in a house and there's a wolf circling the building, the guy who says I don't hear anything. He's a moron, you know. But I would like to be at the window, going, "How big is it? You know, right. how cl- can, how thick are these windows?" And and I don't think uh, that makes your life worse. You know, it actually makes you it makes you more alive. You're you're, uh, you know, you're inhabiting truth in a certain way. But the other thing is, I think that book for me, uh, and this is a little bit of a, and we should say that it's made of people who are dead and are pretty uh, consistently and amusingly refusing to accept that they're in a graveyard and they. Are real sure that they're not dead at they're all. They're not dead. No. Yeah, no, yeah, they're yeah, just, yeah. They're 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 heading back to heading back to life. <laughs> yeah, really they're talking possible. a lot. But you know, you work on a book like that for four or five years, and you see that like any any book is always about life. It, it, you you're, you're narrating dead people, but you know, it, it occurred to me that you've got a bunch of people who uh, are in denial about death, mm-hmm. uh, who are fixated on their own centrality and their own issues and their own neuroses, yeah. uh, who really are pretty convinced that they're the main players in life and everyone else is in their movie. Mm. So that sounds f- familiar. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's a, and it's, 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 there's a kind of connection because if we refuse to accept the lies about happiness that corporations tell us, sooner or later we're going to bump up against yeah. a big bunch of death. Yeah. Or even, or even the, you know, the, uh, the lies we tell ourselves because this moment certainly feels pretty fixed and nice and yeah, comfortable yeah, and yeah. I feel in good health. And uh, so, that, so your senses play a series of jokes on you yeah. uh, and... And that's okay. I mean, I think, you know, we've all been in that moment after someone we care about dies where that curtain drops and you're like, oh my God, this actually, oh, that's what's actually happening here. I don't, for me, that's not sustainable. Two or three days and it's too much. And then you can feel your habitual mind comforting you again. And, you know, but I think it's, I think art can be a way of just dropping that curtain for a minute or, you know, or in a light way to sort of say, you know, let's just kind of lightly look at the reality of our situation here. And again, not with any morbid intent, but just because it, I, th- the people I know who are, you know, spiritual practitioners who really do this well, yeah. they're more alive than anybody I've ever met. Yeah, that's you know? what struck me, yeah. that, that it's a way of, to pay attention to death is to live better, I which think so. was a sort of a surprise to me. And I felt the rebuke of it a little, because like a lot of ordinary, selfish Western people, the idea of paying attention to, to death or ancestors, I think, is a way of staying the same yeah mm-hmm. like uh, not getting a chance to argue properly with authority right 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 um so as a kind of finishing question what this is going to be too simple but what what do you think like what did you come out of because the book is so such an extraordinary amount of paying attention to death yeah. and, and and giving a kind of an as i say a new idea about it is there a well i think i reached the same conclusion that lincoln does which is that uh if you really look at the situation we're in if if you're having a good day, uh, it's lucky. You know, it's not because you're a great person. You know, there, there's a, a funny connection between good fortune and behavior. And so I think if you take that, take stock of that, we're all dying. We're all as lucky or unlucky as fate would have it. Um, then it's it means a softening of borders between people. And he says so- it's sorrow. We're we're in a situation of great sorrow here. Actually, that doesn't mean joyfulness, joylessness, mm. but we're in a situation where we should look upon each other as fellow sufferers. And if you do that, I think that makes courtesy, civility, love, patience, tenderness, all those things. Not not because you're trying to be, be a new age softy, but because that's the logical outcome. If you could really see how temporary we are and how out of control we are of our own destinies. 
George Saunders' new novel is Lincoln in the Bardo. George, thanks very much for it talking to us this morning. It was such a pleasure. You're a great interviewer. Oh, thanks, George. Good to meet you.